This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'll Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 212, and I'm talking with Chris McDougall. Chris McDougall is the author of the wildly popular book, Born to Run. He recently came out with a new book, Running with Sherman. He's also the book of Natural Born Heroes and... I'll let you in on a little secret. There's another book that he's written as well that he talks about in this podcast that I had no idea about. Uh, I've read both Born to Run and Running with Sherman and really enjoyed those books. I think that Chris has led this really cool life. He was a journalist and lived over in a war zone for a little bit of time at the beginning of his career. Um, now lives out in the country and raises donkeys and all kinds of crazy stuff. And, you know, if you are one of those runners who has read the book Born to Run, I know that you'll really appreciate this conversation with Chris. Uh, What I honestly gained from this episode was so much more than just learning about his new book, but um, I felt like I had a really authentic conversation with a really nice guy. And I, for some reason or another, because I'm me, I don't know, I ended up asking him all these parenting questions at the end of the podcast. And I just got off this interview feeling very refreshed. Like, "Ah, this is why I do this podcast. That was so much fun. So anyway, Chris is a runner himself. And I think thanks to Jenny Jurek for recommending me have having Chris on the show because really it's one of my favorite interviews I think I've done in a long time. So, hey, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Aftershocks. And if you don't know by now that I'm a big fan of Aftershocks, I don't know where you've been because I've been talking about them and I love them. Uh, They are a wireless headphone and they use bone conduction technology. They have a really great battery life. You can feel safe because you can hear what's going on around you while still listening to your podcast or your music or whatever you want to listen to. And you all for being a supporter and listener of this podcast can get $50 off an endurance bundle when you go to another.aftershocks.com. And you'll want to use the code another at checkout. So go to another.aftershocks.com and use the code another at checkout for $50 off an endurance bundle. And the link to that will be in the show notes at lindsayhine.com. Hey, you heard me mention parenting uh, questions to Chris in this episode. I want you to know I did start another podcast called the Illuminate Podcast. And actually this past Wednesday, the episode is with a positive parenting expert. Her name is Wendy Snyder. And we dig all into this positive parenting stuff uh, that you hear Chris and I talk about at the end of this episode. So if you just search the Illuminate podcast, you will find that and you'll find the most recent episode there. It was dropped this Wednesday. And while you're at it, also make sure you're checking out the Up and Running podcast. This is a podcast that brings you all of the running news in the elite and professional world of distance running. And my friend Lauren hosts the podcast. It's a really great, really newsy type podcast where you can get the rundown of the big events going on both before and after those events. And that's the up and running podcast, all part of the Sandy boy podcast network. So 
a project that I'm super proud of. All right, and that wouldn't be possible without, uh, Sandy Boy would not be possible without you guys listening here. So I appreciate you being here. All right, enjoy my conversation with Chris McDougall. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Chris McDougall. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks, Lindsay. This is exciting for me. You know, um, Chris is the author of the super popular book, Born to Run, that probably most everybody listening has heard and um, or read or heard of at least. And, you know, I'm one of those people that knew about that book way back in the day, but I didn't end up reading it until I had to prep for a Scott Jurek interview. And I was like, I have to read Born to Run. Really? So what made you wait so long? I don't know. I have no idea, but I'm so glad that I read it. And it's it's one of those stories and books that, I don't know, I feel like every runner needs to, to read, and clearly lots of us have. I was just probing a little bit. I wonder if you had some kind of resistance, like some preconception of what you thought Born to Run was going to be, which is what made you resist. I don't think so, although I will tell you, which you'll think this is funny just based on all the philosophy and born to run and everything. I am one of those people who runs with grandma orthotics. Okay. Good. <laughs> and the, why? Why? Yeah, it's kind of a long story, but I've always ran with them. And uh, since I was like 16, it's so dumb. I mean, I shouldn't have done it then, but I did. And I have really high arches. And so uh, the only time I didn't run with them was in between uh, my first and second babies. And I ended up tearing my plantar fascia because I just did not strengthen my foot like I needed to. And um, I just kept having all these issues. So I said, I'm going to go back to the dang orthotics. And so I did, and I have. And basically, uh, I go to a really fabulous um, sports performance facility here in Indianapolis called St. Vincent. And they are pro, you know, minimal, you don't need all that stuff, but it's basically a matter of me being impatient and me not wanting to do the work that it will take. So for now, I'm just hanging out in my orthotics still. I mean, that's a really interesting thing you're zeroing in on because that was like the big takeaway for me from when barefoot and minimalism was like sky high was that you basically have a choice. You can either cut back on your training in order to learn this skill, or you can try and combine, which is like, I'm going to keep training for a marathon, and I'm going to wear a pair of Vibram Five Fingers. And to me, like, that's a recipe for disaster. And that's exactly actually what I say in Born to Run. I was training for a 50-mile race, and I was trying to learn how to run minimally. And my coach, Eric Gordon, said, you can't do both, dude. You can't train Seriously. in six months for a 50-mile race. Yeah. And he goes, make a choice. And that's exactly like verbatim what I say in Born to Run. And yet there was all this kind of pushback. Like, you know, my Achilles hurts. Like, what's going on? Like, dude, it's exactly what I told you. you. You cannot change your foot strike and your gait while still keeping up your volume. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I had four babies in seven years. And so for me, it was always like, I want to get back in shape so I can run a marathon between babies. And there was just no time for the process. So um, long story short, now I'm done having babies. And I've ran a couple marathons since my last one. And um, I do want to start shaving down my time and getting a little bit faster and not having to come back from that whole postpartum phase. And I, and I do know that 
maybe after my next or the one after that, then I'm going to go through the process. But for now, I'm like, I want to enjoy not I just don't want to put the work in. That's what it is. You know, well, there's another question, too, is like, why bother? I mean, if you're running fine and you're happy and there's no problem, why are you fixing something that doesn't need to be fixed? So it's true for me. it was, an imper- it was an imperative. I was always getting injured. Yeah. And I had tried all kinds of orthotics and heat moldable soles, that kind of thing. None of it worked. So for me, going minimalist was uh, a necessity. But if you're like busting out marathons and babies every other year <laughs> and you're not having a problem, then it sounds to me like your body's in perfect work in order. Yeah. I think it's totally fine. And I get the long term, like why you would want to. But yeah, for me, I'm kind of like, eh. It's just exactly like let's not fix what's not broken and focus on you know keeping everything healthy and um in the meantime i'll just run with five pounds on each foot yeah but again i don't think there's plenty and plenty of places where we can improve that'll change our times as opposed to worrying about footwear because there's a couple of ounces you might shave off really that's not making the difference you're training your recovery your those things make the difference uh for me personally if i want to like you know, save some extra weight. It's not going to come from the shoes. It's going to come from the Hagen dazs you know? That's so right. That's I, right. Yeah. Yeah. Plenty of other areas I can, I can shave things off. I really, I really like that. That's, that's a really good point. Um, well, I kept pushing back this interview, Chris, because I really wanted to finish the book. I'm a big, like, I want to finish the books of people I interview before I interview them. So, um, I am through the book. It was really good. Uh, Chris just wrote a new book, Running with Sherman, and I loved it. I, I loved the character building that you did, and I loved hearing the storylines in the book. So um, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I want to share with everybody a little bit about who you are in case they might not know your history. So let's start with you grew up in Philly and go from there. How about that? Sure. That's good. Uh, yeah. Um, was actually born in South Philly and then moved out to the, the suburbs kind of of Upper Darby, which is kind of sort of hard scrabbly transition area between the city and the suburbs. So I grew up in Upper Darby and that was kind of my life, man. It was kind of dipping in and out of the city, playing basketball and just consider myself a city guy. Now you live in the country. So this is crazy to me because I'm a city person myself and it's just such a stark difference where you live now to where you grew up. Yeah, it was a complete life shift. My wife and I were living in downtown Philly. We had a two-year-old daughter. You know, we we liked a lot about living in in downtown Philly. You know, you can put your daughter in the stroller and just walk over to Chinatown and go to all kinds of bookstores and hang out in the parks. But it was just this moment of thinking – you know what? I've been in cities all my life. Maybe it's time to try something completely different. And I was lucky enough that my wife sort of shared the same sentiment because where we ended up, man, it could not be more different than a city. It'll be on planet Earth. We end up in this place called Peach Bottom, Pennsylvania. It is a, an Amish farming community. And I'm actually looking out the window right now. I've not seen a car in front of the house all day. Literally from seven o'clock this morning, the school bus went by and no other vehicle has passed in front of the house all day. What about a horse and buggy? Yeah, plenty of horse and buggies. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a, that's the vehicle of choice for my Amish neighbors, and all the homes around us in every direction are Amish and Mennonite farms. Wow, wow. Okay, so let's speed everybody up to when before you got there. 
I, in case those listening don't know about your career in journalism, I want to hit on that a little bit as well. So can you go back to your, the beginning days of your career? Yeah, what happened was, you know, I, after college, I kind of knocked around. I felt like I wanted to become a writer, but I wasn't really sure what and how I wanted to do that. So I, I got a um, job teaching English, didn't like it very much. And that summer, since you're still paid as a teacher during the summer break, I was able to go to Europe and backpack around. Ended up in Spain, really likes Madrid, so I stayed there. So, yeah, I was knocking around in Europe, and I landed in Spain, still living off of my teacher salary. And I really liked Madrid, so I ended up staying there for three years, finding odd jobs. But I, I really wanted to try and break into journalism. So I had a friend of a friend who was a foreign correspondent with the Associated Press. And somehow, he managed to get me an interview for a job with the head of the bureau. And for whatever ridiculous reason, she decided to give me a chance, and she signed me on as the new foreign co correspondent for the Lisbon Bureau of the Associated Press. And that's what really launched me as a, as a writer. Yeah, and you did some crazy things. Tell everybody about, like, you show up in that first assignment, you, like, have to go to a war zone. <laughs> yeah, it was nuts. I mean, the very fact that she gave me the job just kind of blew my mind. <laughs> um, but then I thought I'd be staying in Spain. I thought I'd be staying in the Madrid Bureau and spending a couple of years learning the ropes. Instead, she goes, well, we'll train you here for a week. Then we really need you over there. And I'm like, where's there? <laughs> she says, Lisbon, Lisbon, you're going to be the Portuguese correspondent. And I don't want to like challenge her, but dude, I don't speak Portuguese. I've never been to Portugal. I don't even know how to do this job. Like, why are you sending me to another country? So she did exactly as she said. I, I trained for a week in the Madrid Bureau. And then I hop on a train and travel to Lisbon. And the day I walk into the office, my second in command, because I'm now in charge of this bureau, my second in command says, hey, thank God you're here. Civil war just broke out in Angola. And I'm like, oh, that's, uh, that's too bad. But <laughs> what do we care? We cover Angola. Like, why do we do that? Because it's a former Portuguese colony in Africa. And, you know, you are now the correspondent in a war zone for a country you couldn't even find on a map. And that was basically it. Within two weeks of arriving in Lisbon, I was on a plane heading down to sub-Saharan Africa to cover a civil war that I didn't even know was happening. Were you scared? I was scared S-less. I won't use the word. But yeah, man, I was completely – I was all clenched up. I was completely scared shitless because for every conceivable reason, I had never been in a conflict zone. I didn't know how to do this job. I did not speak the language of the country I was going to. And so, yeah, I was super apprehensive. But, you know, I was fortunate that, you know, one of the things I learned from covering these conflicts is that I went into Angola thinking that I was going to encounter a bunch of really like angry, hostile, dangerous people. And I did. But 99.9% .9 of the people in conflict zones just want to like, you know, with their lives, you know, they just want to like have dinner and hang with their families. They don't want to be involved in this stuff, but it's always like that one tenth of 1% of the dudes. And it's always dudes mm. that are busy making life a misery for everybody else. And they won't stop. And if you're watching the impeachment hearings, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. You know, these old dudes just have to grab power and fight over it. And they get everybody else swept up in their nonsense. So that's what I found in Angola, that 
most of the people were extraordinarily welcoming and friendly and protective of me and kept me out of trouble. Yeah. Why did you go, though? Because if if I, if I were you, I would have been like, I'm not going. Do you think it was like <laughs> something about how you were raised? Like what? Even though you were scared, why'd you go? Uh, yeah, I think there's <laughs> there's probably a through line in my entire life <laughs> that connects all those dots of like reckless, impulsive decisions. Uh, yeah, I think that was just kind of it. You know, it was just fake it till you make it. I thought I'll jump in and yeah, I feel like almost everything I've done, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> um, it, it, honestly, when you get to Born to Run, I'm like wandering around in a canyon looking for a lost tribe. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just down there hoping for the best. Yeah. What What was your life like growing up? I'm just curious. How did Chris become the person that he has become? Well, you know, I think that it was really probably dependent on two things. One was... Well, let, let me give, give an example. So um, a couple of years ago, I was invited up to Harvard University to sit on a, a panel that was going to be looking at um, sort of evolutionary biology and human performance. And so there are going to be three people in the panel. It was uh, Daniel Lieberman, a professor of biology at Harvard, Dr. John Rady, who's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical, and me. So I show up and I'm completely like, outgunned by these guys. But before we go on stage... Uh, Professor Rady from Harvard uh, Hospital sort of puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, you know, I'm sure for you, school must have been very difficult, you know, because of your advanced ADHD, you probably had trouble in school. Hmm. I'm like, dude, dude, I'm not ADHD. And he just kind of like nods his head and he goes, oh, yeah, you are. <laughs> and uh, like, whoa. But he had just like diagnosed me in the first five minutes that we met. But as soon as he said it, I was, at first I was like indignant. But then I was like, oh, like now everything makes sense. That's pretty much what I think happened to me as a kid. I was just um, kind of hyper and limited attention span. And I was always getting in trouble and getting kicked out of class. I was just kind of doing my own thing. I, I literally spent the entire fourth grade standing in the hall. Really? So I, oh, yeah, yeah. It got to the point where I would walk into school and Mrs. Fromm would just look at me and just point to the door. Huh. So. I hadn't even done it. I hadn't even done anything yet. She kind of saw the look in my face. She's like, all right, just get out now. This save us both some trouble. Gosh, when you think about that now, how old are your girls? Fifteen and nineteen. So they're oh. and there's there's the operative word. The operative word there is girls. Girls. Um, I honestly believe, dude. I honestly believe it. For some reason, I've made a study of like my friends' kids, and. Girls at least operate on the level of like logic and reason, whereas little boys are just like these little savages that just like, hey, what will happen if I kick the screen door? Dude, no, no girl would do that. You know, uh, so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in gender stereotypes here. Sure. But I was always afraid that I was going to have a son like me. And fortunately... I ended up with two girls like my wife, so I, I totally lucked out. Well, I have four boys. Oh, my goodness. Don't take a nap right now. I know. And I I say this often, like we'll be at a restaurant or something and these little girls are like quietly coloring or, you know, whatever. Or I go to my friend's house and her little girls are like playing with their dolls in the corner or 
you know, doing whatever. And my kids are literally just breaking things constantly. And like, it's just so loud. And so sure, it's a stereotype, but you know, I'm living in that reality right now. So I, I see what you're saying. And, and, and I was that kid. I was constantly fidgeting with things and playing with things and breaking things. And now I see boys do it. I'm like, what is wrong with you, dude? Like, why are you jumping on the chair? Like, it's like a, it's like raising chimpanzees. Uh, anyway, but I was that kid. The kid that I'm complaining about, that was me. And so maybe if there's a through line, I mean, there, there was one saving grace was I really liked to read. I really liked mm. books. So, you know, whenever I got, whenever I got chucked out in the, in the hall at school, I would actually just walk down the hall to the library and just get an armload of books. And I was just sitting in the hall reading books myself. And so I think what it ended up sort of creating was a kid that um, really just wanted to do things on his own for himself and was living kind of half in a fantasy land. Like half my brain was living in whatever I was reading. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say when I was asking about your girls, like, you know, if, if my child, you know, walked into school every day and that happened because of his ADHD or whatever it may be, like, I'm thinking, man, I need to find a different school for him because I don't want my kid to walk into the classroom and their teacher to look at him and say, ah, you're going to the hallway right away. I want to find like a different solution. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I guess I, I, I came out of a South Philadelphia household where the last person on earth I was going to talk and tell about me getting in trouble was my parents, you know, <laughs> so uh, I was very happy to keep this completely confidential. How many siblings do you have? Five, it was five of us total. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. You're a journalist. You're over doing some crazy work um, in a war zone. And then what happens next? So, you know, I covered um, three different conflicts. I was in Angola and then Mozambique. And then I was in Rwanda for the genocide. And after about four or five years of that, uh, I think two things happened. One is you feel like you've seen enough violence to last you a lifetime. And not just violence, but just anger, cruelty, um, intolerance. Like, you kind of seen enough of that. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to not be around that mentality anymore. And the second thing that develops is that you start to develop a lot of expertise in stuff that people don't care about. So, you know, I knew a lot about Angola, but there really isn't much interest in the U.S. for news about, you know, sub-Saharan African countries. And so what happens is you have this, you know, mind full of knowledge, but you only have a four or five paragraph news story that you can use once in a while. So I decided I'm going to get back to the States. I'm going to find a peaceful place to live and I want to branch out into longer writing. So it took me a little while to pull off, but that's exactly what I accomplished. I was able to get out of Philly and into the countryside and start focusing on books. Yeah. But where did you live? Did you live in the country in Philly when you wrote Born to Run? We had just moved there. Uh, let me see if I got this right. Yeah. Okay. We're, let me see. 2000. Yeah. So what, ha what happened was, let me, I just sort of worked through the chronology. I basically spent um, about two years in downtown Philly. So I moved back from uh, Europe back to the U.S. I, I figured I would go back to base. I would go back to Philly because I thought if I'm going to try to break in as a freelance magazine writer, I got to play from strength. I got to be in a place where I know what's going on. Because one thing I'd, I'd learned working overseas is 
no matter how much like I knew about Portugal, for instance, that a Portuguese person knew way more than I did. Mm. So if there was like a, a murder, a murder story that I was covering and it was on a particular neighborhood in Lisbon, I would go there. I knew a lot about that neighborhood after four or five years, but someone native to Lisbon knew way more, you know, they, they knew everything about that neighborhood. So I thought, let me do the same thing myself. Let me go back to a place that I know better than other journalists. And there's no one from New York or L.A. who's going to show up in Philly and know more than I do. So, yeah, so I moved back to Philly, and that's how I sort of made my bones as a magazine writer, was operating out of Philly. And it just gave me the opportunity to write stories that other people weren't covering. Um, but my mind was always kind of like, let's just find the opportunity to get out of here when we can. And, um, yeah, when the time was right, uh, 2002, uh, my wife and I just uh, sort of upped stakes and looked for a place to look cool. And where we end up with this insane place, this log cabin in the middle of nowhere. Wow. Um, sorry if it sounds delayed, because I could tell that you're hearing my, my like comments to what you're saying after the fact. So it's like to you, it probably sounds like I'm saying that in an awkward place. But I just want you to know I can tell there's a delay. <laughs> Um, okay, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, I heard it come back and I was like, oh man, he probably thinks I said that way delayed. Um, no, I'm so fascinated by this. Are, are both of your, so one of your daughters is at home now and one of them's off to school or off on her own or are they both at home? Yeah, so one's away in college. She's a sophomore in college. Okay. And the younger one, Sophie, is a sophomore in high school. I just, I can't imagine growing up in this lifestyle that they've grown up in being out in the country like that when you mentioned you saw a school bus go by um and and in running with Sherman in the book you know your you your girls are mentioned in there a little bit but that's not really a big part of the story at all so um did they go to school with like 50 kids or or are they on the bus for an hour every morning what does that look like they went through a couple transitions. So the local school is only about two and a half um, miles away. Oh, okay. And so, yes, yeah, so that's where they went up until they were in like seventh grade. And then we transferred them to a private school up in Lancaster, which is about 30 miles away. And the reason why was because my daughters were kind of growing up like me, that they were really into books. They're like big readers. And really good students, like naturally self-motivated students. And the problem with schools in rural areas is that you start to get a divide right around fifth and sixth grade. Uh, Like half the school is ready to tap out, you know, that the kids are not really planning to go on to college Mm. and the other half is. And so you had this kind of division between kids who really aren't really paying that much attention anymore, really don't care versus the kids who are. And, and want to do more. And so I knew for myself that as soon as I got bored in school, like that's when the trouble started. Like, you know, as soon as I hit fourth grade and I was like kind of reading more than other kids and a little more sort of word oriented, um, I started to get bored. And when I got bored, I just started stirring up trouble. And that's, that's when all the, all the trouble began. So my plan was I I don't want my kids to do do the same thing. So right around seventh grade, they started to get bored and we were able to find a private school, which now means we just drive a buttload back and forth, but you know, it's worth it. Okay. So you do the driving, no bus. No, there's no, there's no bus for them because, um, 
yeah, the school, uh, yeah, they wouldn't be able to be reached by a bus. So we got we got to haul them up there and back. I think because I hear so much of like when you explain how you guys live out there and and all your Amish neighbors, like so it sounds so refreshing and peaceful and the like city person in me is just like but what if I want to go to the store really quick or you know what if I want to go meet my friend for coffee or go for a run with a friend or something um so how did you adapt and adjust to that lifestyle out there you know really really easily and I wonder about that too because stuff that seemed so important to me before like you know, in Philly, I was working downtown at Philadelphia Magazine, and there was like a little Thai restaurant around the corner that had like a seven-dollar lunch special. And like one of my thoughts when we were moving was, "But what am I going to do about the seven-dollar lunch special? Like, <laughs> I'm not going to have that anymore. And I, do, I, do I really want to lose that?" And things like that. And um, but now that we're here, almost immediately, we never felt the loss. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because it's just so pretty. And your day is filled with other things that are kind of, I don't know, cooler and nicer. So I, I don't know. All I can say is that from the second we got here, it just felt completely at home. And I completely love it here. Yeah. And you're with your people. I mean, your family, that's your people. Um, okay. So I want to hear a little bit about, so you've wrote three books, Born to Run. Natural Born Heroes, and Running with Sherman. Am I missing a book? Well, you kind of are. And I usually what am I, I missing? usually keep it as a punchline for my book. So here's a, here's a, here's a fascinating little nugget that okay. I'll share with you. And I've almost, I don't think I've ever actually shared this um, for broadcast before. Okay. So what I do at book events is I'll, I'll offer prizes. So I'll do different <laughs> kinds of little games and things like that. And, and I'll offer different things as prizes. And for one of the prizes, I'll say to people, okay, you know, who knows the name of my first book? And people go, Born to Run. I go, you're confident, but you're incorrect. I actually wrote a previous book about a sexy Mexican pop star who was secretly running her own brainwashing sex cult. It's called Girl Trouble. And that's why I tell everybody my first book is actually Born to Run. And so that's the truth. I actually have a book called Girl Trouble. Is it good? That I wrote while researching. I don't know. You know what the thing about it is, Lindsay, is that. It was so hard for me to write it because I was actually researching Born to Run while I was writing this book. And I was I would write a chapter and just send it off to my editor. And I never have to this day I've never actually read the entire book. I just wrote a chapter, sent it off, wrote a chapter, sent it off for 15 chapters. And it was such a stressful, hurried project that I've never been able to bring myself to sit down. I'm kind of like wincing, like, I don't know if it's good or not. I'm really <laughs> quite sure. So I don't know. Um, that's hysterical. And I hope that listeners are learning <laughs> something new right now. Um, but I'm just so curious as to why that book, when the clear progression of all your other books were totally different. Like, how did you even get interested in writing about that topic? So this is during my transition phase. I just left the Associated Press as a hard news journalist, and I was living in Philly, uh, trying to you know make a living as a freelance magazine writer. And a friend of mine who was still with the AP uh, down in Mexico called me up and said, "Hey, have you heard about this like pop singer Gloria Trevi?" And I'm like, "No, man, I never heard of her." 
So she's like a top of the charts phenomenon in Latin America. And then all of a sudden she like vanishes well, along with her entourage and her manager. And there were all these allegations that she was secretly running this like brainwashing sex cult. So, I mean, imagine it's like, it's like, you know, Beyonce and Jay-Z suddenly disappear. And now the police are hunting for them like worldwide. So I got an early heads up on this story from my friend in Mexico. And so this was like the perfect opportunity to make like a high profile pitch. I was able to go to the New York Times magazine where I'd never been able to break in as a magazine writer. And I said, hey, hey, here's a great story. You guys don't know about this yet. I'm the perfect guy to do this, this assignment. And, you know, once again, I basically bullshit my way into a job that I was not really qualified for. So, uh, yeah, the New York Times magazine hired me to go cover this brainwashing sex cult story. And it was while I was down there doing that that I first heard about the Tarumata and learned about the story that would become Born to Run. So basically I was down there to cover you know, the, the disappearing kidnapping sex cults. But while I was doing that story, I heard about Born to Run. So my goal was, all right, let's get this thing done as fast as I can. And then let's really dig into this tribe and see what's going on with this running tribe. Wow. That's a really cool piece to the yeah. story of Born to Run. I feel I feel so excited that I just got to learn that on this podcast. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think what happened with Born to Run, so, you know, Girl Trouble came out and was, you know, kind of universally ignored, as it probably <laughs> should be. And, but then I immediately just got to work on Born to Run, and that thing just took off so fast and furiously that girl trouble was just kind of forgotten, you know? Mm. And so no one was asking me tra- questions about the sex cult. Everyone wanted to hear about barefoot running and chia seeds. Yeah. And you're not like, I, I'm it's, they came out so close together. It sounds like too, that, you know, when you promote a book, like you're doing now with running with Sherman, it's like, you're on the constant hustle. Like I'm, you know, you want to get in on as many shows and get out in front of as many people as possible to promote your book. But the excitement of born to run sounds like it trumped that, but I feel like I'm going to have to go read that book. Like (laughs) I'm a reader and now I'm like, I want to know about this book. If I Google it on Amazon, will I find it? Sure, I'd be happy to send you a copy. I think all the <laughs> copies that exist are like in my basement right now. So, yeah, oh, send me your address, Lindsay. I'd be happy to get a copy. Okay, okay, great. Just be gentle. Okay, I'll be gentle. I'll be like, this is the real Chris. <laughs> this is the real Chris. I know about this first right. book. Um, <laughs> okay, so Born to Run. Let's dive into that a tiny bit real quick before we get into Sherman. I Tell me what your favorite part about writing that book is was you know i think the favorite thing about it is that i got a chance to get really close really fast with some of the coolest people i ever met in my life and it's kind i mean i felt at the time you know i was hanging out with like lewis escobar and barefoot ted scott york and caballo blanco and arlufo and salvino and I'm like, my God, this is like the best party I've ever been to in my life. You know, these people are so freaking cool. And it's really been borne out because it's now been more than 10 years. I mean, that race I wrote about was 2006. So it's actually been 13 years. And I still see all of them all the time. I just saw Jen Shelton in Salt Lake a little mm-hmm. while ago. I saw Ted in Seattle. So I, I see these people all the time. And it's always a kick. Like, man, you are still exactly as cool as I remembered. And so that was basically it. That I got the chance to parachute in to the middle of this really wicked cool adventure 
with these people who are just one of the kind. Yeah. Do you feel like that's all part of like, it sounds like this is all kind of like how you roll. Like you say, oh, I just like jumped, you know, I just pitched myself for the New York magazine, like a job that I didn't really necessarily like, you know, wasn't qualified for, but like, I just put myself in that position. Do you feel like that's kind of how things have evolved? Like with the born to run and meeting up with those guys, like you just put yourself in the position to make it happen. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not sure at what point I realized that I think a lot of it has to do with what journalism is all about is that you never know what you're getting into. Mm. If you already knew, then you wouldn't be out there researching in the first place. And I, I always felt like particularly as a freelancer that you got to get out there and find stuff. You got to find stuff that other people aren't finding. Otherwise, why would they hire you? And so that was basically it. As soon as I got a whiff of something cool, I would just run and, and try and jump on it. And uh, what, you, what you find is that becomes this self-rewarding cycle. It's like, hey, I jump into a glory to everything. Lo and behold, look at that, man. I'm in the New York Times Magazine, and I got a book deal. Uh, hey, there's a race in the Copper Canyon with a bunch of barefoot dudes. Yeah, sure, I'll go do that. And that's basically it. You know, Jump first and learn how to fly later. All right, friends, I'm going to break in real quick and let you know, I will be going back to the Donna Marathon for the third time this year. This is a race weekend that I love so much. It is the weekend of February 7th through the 9th in Jacksonville, Florida. It's a flat, fast Boston qualifying marathon course. However, they also have a 5K, a half marathon, a half marathon relay, and on top of the marathon, 110 ultra marathon and challenge events. So the race starts and finishes at the beaches town center in the heart of Neptune beach. It's beautiful. And this event is the official event for the Donna foundation. The Donna foundation provides financial assistance and support nationwide to those living with breast cancer and funds groundbreaking research to finish the disease once and for all with your help. Last year, we raised over $11,000 for the Donna foundation it's a cause that is near and dear to my own heart, and um, I'm just super excited to get back to this race. So I'm going to have a meetup down there. If you're thinking about doing the race, head over to thebreastcancermarathon.com and use the code LINDSAY15 to get 15% off your registration. All right, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you haven't done so yet, I would appreciate it so very much if you would consider leaving a rating interview on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It is one of the best ways potential new listeners can find us. So um, yeah, that's just like a really simple, easy way to show your support. And then the other thing is that Dina Castor and Sally McRae podcast recording, the live show I did is over on my Patreon page. You can listen to the whole thing there. Uh, the video from the night is also over on Patreon, so you can actually watch it and hear it uh, through your podcast app, whichever you prefer, when you support the show on Patreon. Those episodes will always be going up. Those live events that I put on myself will always be going up on Patreon. And um, also, Glenn and I just recorded a New York City Marathon recap of my race over on Patreon as well, so you got two episodes from November, the live show and a New York City Marathon breakdown from my race. And yeah, you can get that at patreon.com slash Lindsay Hine. 
I want to make sure that the extra content, the extra episodes you're getting over there are worth your time and worth your investment. So if you do join the Patreon community, please feel free to drop me an email and let me know what all you'd like to see done over there to make that experience as much worth your time as possible. All right, friends, enjoy the rest of my conversation with Chris McDougall. And then how do you keep yourself in check? Like not get all big headed about, you know, the successes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because they always come with an extraordinary fear of failure. (laughs) You know, uh, every one of these things, every one of these projects, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing, dude. When are people going to find out that I shouldn't be doing this? Um, Even like with running with Sherman, I didn't know anything about donkeys or horses or burrow races i was just out of my depth and so you know you you just you're afraid that you're about to fail and i I hopefully keeps you honest yeah i love the kind of like common theme and your common message your message that you often share is like um and this this comes through very loud and clear in running with sherman uh but it's definitely something that i've I've pulled from your writing and and hearing you speak in the past is that when you run for the pure enjoyment of running and strip away the, the need to be super speedy or the, you know, that fierce competition aspect of it, it just, it brings it all back to why you started doing it in the first place. And I really appreciate that message. Yeah. It's a weird thing because I understand the, desire to have performance goals. Um, But, you know, last night, for instance, I was in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, which anybody who has an opportunity to visit Phoenixville, take the opportunity. I guarantee you, you'll love it. It's a tiny old steel town in like central PA, but it's been coming back to life. Same, I was there last night and I was out with a running club and they took me for a run along this uh, river trail. And I just remember it so vividly because it was dusk when we started and it got darker and darker. And all I could see on this river trail were different headlamps bobbing along. And so you couldn't run fast because you're in the dark, but it was almost like a Christmas parade. It was all darkness and these little bobbing lights in the distance. And I remember thinking, this is perfect. Like this is the perfect run because no one's racing. Everyone's having fun. It's so beautiful. And it was just ideal. Like to me, that's what running is all about. And I see what you're saying too. Like you understand why people want to compete and want to see what their potential is. Um, I, I get that way, but I just ran the New York city marathon and I, I ran it hard and I ran it fast to my ability level that I'm at right now. But there was something so enjoyable about it because I had, zero pressure on myself. I had, I was in no shape to run my fastest time, but I still wanted to work really hard. But with that pressure removed, I literally enjoyed the entire thing and still worked really hard. So you can do both, you know? Well, that's, that's the magic formula. You know, if you can run within your ability level and you keep it on the right side of unpleasantness, like that's, that's the magic. That's the secret. But I think most people stray over the line. You know, they go beyond what's comfortable into what they feel they should be doing. And it becomes uh, sort of miserable and frustrating. Yeah. And so then it's like, let's remove this and reevaluate um, 
our, our reasons behind it because 99.9% of us are not trying to make an Olympic team here. Let's talk about Sherman. Uh, you rescued this donkey who was basically near death and he becomes your running partner. And I, I'd love for you to kind of just share the story of his transfer transformation. So Sherman came to us because of my younger daughter, Sophie, when she was nine years old and I asked her what she wanted for her birthday. And she says a donkey. And, you know, I actually kind of like the idea because, you know, we have plenty of land around us. And about a year earlier, we met a woman walking in the woods um, who we were out hiking and she was riding a donkey up this stony trail in the woods. And we all kind of thought, eh, it's really kind of cool. It'd be kind of fun to have a donkey. But all the normal people in the family just kind of forgot about it. But my younger daughter, Sophie, it was just kind of percolating in her brain like, yeah, when are we going to get that donkey? And so one year later, I asked her, what do you want for your birthday? And she says, a donkey. So I started to ask around. I was like, does anybody around here know anybody who's got a donkey for sale? And one of our neighbors said, actually, we know a situation. There's a guy who's a hoarder. He's got a donkey locked in a stall. We've been trying to get it away from him. You know, maybe you can get it. And that's what we did. We went to check out this donkey, and it was in such horrible shape and such miserable conditions that I basically told the guy, listen, man, either you're going to give him to me or I'm going to call the cops and make sure somebody else gets him. But he ain't staying here. And lo and behold, he ended up giving up the donkey and, and letting us take it. But when we got him out of that stall, we discovered he was even in worse shape than we had realized. His, his hooves had grown so long and curled that the donkey couldn't even walk anymore. Uh, his teeth were falling out. Uh, he was just catatonic. So it began this very hit or miss kind of life or death process, just try to bring him back to life. And the key was that we had a friend um, who was helping us. Actually, that woman we'd seen in the woods, I was able to track her down and she knew donkeys and she showed up. And the one thing that she kind of threatened me with was, look, man, you don't just put this thing out in the field and, and forget about it. You understand? Like he needs a job. He needs something to do every day, like, just like everybody else. You wake up in the morning, you open your eyes, and your first question is, what am I doing today? He needs that too. And I'm like, well, dude, what am I going to do? I'm not like a prospector. <laughs> well, I don't have a job for a donkey. But the one thing I knew about was there were races in Colorado, Packboro races, where people run alongside their donkeys for distances of up to 29 miles. So I thought, all right, if we can save this donkey's life and get him healthy again, then maybe the job that I can have for him is to make him my running partner. And let's see if we can train for one of those races together. I like the amount of time and energy that you guys put into training for this race. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just can't really wrap my head around it it's it's I mean based on how it's described in the book it's like a huge huge process so what like because in my head I'm like okay like we can find the donkey a job that might not consist of something that crazy but was part of that because you really wanted to do that race too no I actually tried the race 10 years earlier and I hated it <laughs> I had a assignment for men's health to actually go do the world championship pack bar race. I had first heard about it while I was researching born to run because the borough races are held in the same town where the Tatamata Indians who had come up from Mexico 
had raced uh, in Leadville okay. back in the 1990s. So I was out in Leadville researching Born to Run, and they go, oh, yeah, actually, you know, our races actually began with this Packborough race. That's why we have the Leadville Trail 100. So I said, okay, that sounds, that sounds cool. That sounds like a good magazine story. So I did it, and I hated it. It was horrible. It was horrible. You know, I'm, uh, you're 12,000 feet. You're holding onto a rope tied to a 1,000-pound animal that doesn't like you. And I remember finishing that race thinking, thank God I never, ever have to do that again. And now it's 10 years later, and I got a dying donkey in my yard. My daughter's, you know, nine-year-old birthday wish is dying in front of her eyes. And I got a woman telling me, you got to find a job. I'm like, well, the only job I can think of is – because here's one thing about it, Lindsay, is that any job that I don't really want to do, at some point, I'm just going to quit. You know, So I knew that if saving this donkey's life meant that I was going to have to walk it in a circle every day in the backyard, after about two weeks, I'd probably just stop doing it. Sure. You know, so, so it had to be something that I wanted to do. And I, I like to run, so I figured, all right, this could be the perfect marriage. He needs to move. I like to run. If I can get him to run with me, then maybe maybe we're on to something. Yeah. So what's the greatest lesson you learned from the whole experience? And, and you know, it ended up being a pack of donkeys and your wife and your neighbor. So, what you know, you kind of like had this like total group effect. So what did you learn from that whole experience? You know, it's funny because ever since – born to run uh every once in a while i'll bump into people who will come up to me and tell me like what book meant to them mm. and one thing people always tell me is that uh one of the first things that micah true told me when i was trying to learn how to be a runner was he said you know dude the secret is this you first you focus on easy because if easy is all you get that ain't so bad mm. once you can run easily then focus on light if you can run light and easy that's bliss then focus on smooth, and then you'll become fast. So basically, easy, light, smooth equals fast. So a lot of people I, I sort of pick that up as their mantra. And what I keep finding for myself is I end up circling back to it as well. Like everything I do, eventually I realize, oh, it's just easy, light, smooth, and fast all over again. And that's essentially what happened with the donkeys. The first thing about it is, you know, if you want a donkey – you're probably going to experience this with your four boys. Like anything you want a boy to do, you got to make the boy think that he thought of it first, right? <laughs> so that's that's essentially what happens with a donkey. You got to make the donkey think it was his idea, and that essentially is by making it easy. If it's the donkey's idea, then it's easy. So what we found over time was that getting one donkey to run is pretty darn hard. Getting three donkeys to run is pretty easy. So, you know, over time, we just kept throwing more bodies at the problem. Like, oh, maybe one donkey, maybe try two donkeys, maybe try three, which meant we needed three runners. So my poor wife, who is a Hawaiian hula dancer, you know, who expected to be back in Oahu by now, finds herself being handed a rope saying, hey, look, I got one for you, too. Yeah. And your neighbor. And, and there was like a yeah. transformative process. I don't want to give too much of the book away. So I'll, I'll let that, I feel like that story is a really, a really cool part in the book. So I don't want to give too much away, but I, I, I just thought the story of your neighbor's son was just really cool just to see how um, nurturing being with the animals was for him. 
I'll tell you something because you'll appreciate this. Um, he just graduated college last spring mm. and he went on a lot of the book tour with me on the East Coast. So he and I were road tripping together for the past month. Oh, so, fun. So cool. And I fixed him up. Desma, if you're listening, I have been talking you up to Zeke ever since. We um, were up in Cambridge, New York, upstate New York, at an event. And this wonderful woman named Desma came over to talk. And while she's talking to us, I'm like elbowing Zeke in the ribs like, Zeke, Zeke, like, get her phone number, dude. <laughs> and uh, you know, come on, man. Like, Do I have to be beyond the wingman? Do I have to make this happen for you? And she is delightful and a runner and smart and cool. And last night, uh, Zeke was like waving his phone in the air. And he's like, hey, guess who texted me? Ah! I said, it better be Desma, man. <laughs> yeah. So That's the best. Um that's the best because she's wonderful and you know what you know how cool he is so i hope that someday i can officiate at the marriage of zeke and desma yes oh my gosh where all did you guys hit the road i'm in indianapolis were you anywhere near us for the book tour no you know it's funny i really was actually thinking about indiana because as you know one of the to me one of the most charming moments of the story happens at a Cracker Barrel in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to go back to that Cracker Barrel on tour to thank Marilyn um, for being so kind to us. But again, that's a little subplot that people will encounter deep in the book. We did not get, I was in Kansas and Missouri. I was basically everywhere. Kansas, Missouri, through Colorado, uh, all the way up the West Coast from San Diego to Seattle and then East Coast, um, Boston down to Atlanta and everywhere in between. Just lumping us into a flyover state. You didn't come to Indiana. <laughs> next time, next time. Yeah. No, brutal, right? I'll be back. I'll, I'm just taking a little breather right now, but I'll get back out there again. Yeah, we'll rally for Indiana next time. Um, <laughs> well, I appreciate the book, and I always love. I've never written a book myself. I'm not the best writer, but I, I kind of would like to write a book someday. I don't know about what, and so I always love talking to people who who have done that and. And so this has been really fun. I have some into the podcast questions for you if you have time. I absolutely do. Okay. All right, Chris. What is one thing professionally or personally that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? I think the one thing I want to do is write about female big wave surfers. Really? And I haven't. Yeah, because you know what? There's something about I think I'm really attracted to underdogs like people who get shut out of stuff and you know female big wave surfers have been like banned from the biggest competitions like the dudes will not let them compete which just strikes me as ridiculous and so this year for the first time women are allowed to compete in the mavericks big wave competition so i am seriously tempted to write about that except i feel a little bit too far from the subject like i'm not a woman I'm not a surfer. I don't know the world. So I think it's a great story. I don't feel like I'm really knowledgeable enough just yet to do it. And is this a book or an article? I would do a book. I would, really, I would want to do a, a real deep dive into the kind of people that want to get involved in a sport that can wipe you out, can snuff you out in a heartbeat. So um, I'm also hesitant because Susan Casey wrote this amazing book called The Wave – where she looks at big wave surfers, but she looks at dudes. 
but her book is so good. Like, oh, okay, that's that's the standard you got to measure yourself against. And right now, that's a little bit beyond my grasp. Is this the book? I heard you talking about some other author at one point. Is this the the author where you like? I don't know. You had some author that you were like, everything she does is the best, and so I'm it's I'm in my head about it or something. Could be. There's a lot of writers like that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which one it is. Uh, I, I one thing I've been doing on book tour is I've been selling my friend uh, Susanna Cahalan, who wrote Brain on Fire, and she has a book out now called The Great Pretender. So on book tour. I've been selling my books. I'm like, hey, by the way, you know what? If you guys are smart, you'll buy a copy of The Great Pretender because she's actually better than me. So um, <laughs> it's actually worked. I think I've sold a couple of copies of Cahalan's book at every event I've had. Oh, that's a really good idea. You know that Brain on Fire book, I've it's one of those books that I've looked at maybe reading a time or two. And I, I get a little bit nervous about books that might make me like, sad or you know just feel anxiety and so i've always been nervous that that book would cause me anxiety i think you'll be okay it's um she's a great writer and there's a little bit of detachment because she's reporting on an incident of her life that she does not remember at all okay so she was reporting on herself as, as a as a third person so wow. and she's funny and she's cool and a lot of the book is about her her own the, the better parts of her life. So I, I guess Dynamite's a great book. Yeah, it's and it's big. Like I I know a lot of people that have read it. Um, yeah. All right, what's an accomplishment you're most proud of? Uh, you know, this is kind of weird, and I, maybe because we were talking about kids, but I think um, learning to not punish kids when my daughter was two years old. Uh, I, and I came from a super strict background of like, you know, getting my, my butt whomped. And... Um, my wife just kind of opened my eyes to the fact of like, there's a better way to do this. So my kids turned out great. And I have a feeling it's because my wife kind of schooled me on how to do this. So uh, I think it's probably the best thing I've ever done. Wow. You know, this is so, it almost feels like serendipitous because um, I actually have a second podcast that's not running related. It's uh, called the Illuminate podcast. And I just interviewed a woman on Tuesday who is a positive parenting coach, I guess that's what you would call her. And we, I literally just spent an entire hour talking about that exact topic on Tuesday. I'll give you an hour or two on it too, because again, I came out of a really strict, super you know, obedient, disciplinary family. And to me, like, that's just the way you do things. And then, you know, my, my daughter was two and she's having a tantrum and I'm trying to like settle her. And my wife's like, dude, look at the size of you. You're like six foot six mm. and 250 pounds. All she sees is like an angry monster. <laughs> and it's true. And as soon as my wife said that, I'm like, oh my God, like I get it. Um, my daughter isn't reacting to me. She's reacting to the fear of this giant creature. Hmm. And it opened my eyes. And that was it. We we never have had to punish either of our kids ever, ever since. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Regarding that. Um, I, I gave this lady this same scenario. So I just I just am curious to know. Um, especially now I, I love asking parents of kids who are older too, because my kids are young, they're seven, five, three, and one. So I'm like in the thick of it right now. Um, yeah. so the other day, my five-year-old says, I hate you. And then he says he was, had a little fight with his little buddy down the street and he said, I hate so-and-so. And I was so 
angry because I it made me so sad to think that my five-year-old even like maybe he doesn't know what that word means but I don't want my kids to say that word um so long story short it fizzled into something that I wasn't proud of with me screaming and putting him in his room giving him a spank on the butt um and I did that in the moment because uh, my one-year-old's crawling up and down the stairs. My three-year-old's like breaking who knows what. And I was like, I have to keep these kids safe and I need to like keep him in his room and he wouldn't go in his room. So anyway, I, I've i thought about this over and over again since. And um, I would love to know what you would have done in that situation. <laughs> I would call my wife and say, Mika, what do we do? Well, you know, here's here's the first thing is that Anybody fair is going to tell you, you can't second guess a soldier in the line of fire. You know, you're in the, at the front lines with three kids crawling up you. So uh, you, you do what you feel is right. But I think the key thing is there is it was emotion that took over. And that was, to me, was the big thing. And it, curiously, it actually sort of circles back to working with donkeys is that the second you feel the frustration or the emotion taking hold – that's when you got to stop and take a breath. And with donkeys, you get immediate feedback because if you're running with a donkey, there's a saying that, you know, what you feel travels down the rope. So if you're running with a donkey and you're on the rope and you start to get frustrated, like that sensation travels down the rope and the donkey picks up on it. And they don't know why you're feeling this emotion, but to them, it's something dangerous and they'll stop. So you learn, like the second you start to feel frustrated, you got to off vent that steam immediately or else the donkeys will do even worse than what they're already doing. So again, I don't want to second guess what happened with you in that situation, but the second you felt the emotion taken over and you were having an, an emotional trigger to the word hate. Yeah. So, and you feel bad and, and you're upset, but that feeling bad is not going to help the situation. So under ideal circumstances, then you want to ask, Hey, where did you ever hear that word? Hate? like, where did that come from? Did yes. you hear it on a TV show? Like, just, Find out what he's talking about because he doesn't know. He's five. He doesn't know what the hell hate means. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I think what we've always found is that if you can just be detached and ask some questions, like, "Wow, you, you hate me? Are you sure?" Because you know, I thought we were kind of friends, and you hate Billy. I, I thought he was kind of your friend too. He might not even know what the hell he's talking about. So his concept of hate is different than yours, but you're reacting to your concept of hate. Yeah. So. I don't know. I, I think maybe in that situation, maybe what you do is, hey, Bill, I'll tell you what, you know, why don't you go get yourself some crackers? I'm going to deal with the kid who's falling down the stairs right now. <laughs> we'll, we'll circle back to this. Yes. You and, know? and that's exactly what I took from that conversation with her is like, we need to revisit this later. Like, I don't need to react right this second. So sure. I I appreciate I appreciate your insight on on the parenting thing, though, because I I just kind of feel like the you saying that was like, meant to be in my life right now after doing that other interview. It just kind of, and I'm, I'm really focusing on that in my parenting right now. So, um, that means a lot that you said that. But you know, Lizzie, I think the important thing, uh, is what your other guest told you is that nothing has to be done right now. You know, like the lesson will not be lost if you deal with it the next day. So <laughs> the second you feel the heat building up, so you know what, maybe I'm not the one ready to have the conversation I hate right now. So don't have it. You know, the, the five-year-old's character is not going to be molded in that minute. So put it aside. Bring it up later on. 
I think that's exactly it. And I think that that's what I was get, I've gotten myself hung up on is when my child says something or does something, you know, hits their brother, whatever in that moment, I need to let them know that that's not okay. And I can say that without getting angry and then we can still talk about it later. And that's what I'm, and, and, and the thing that this woman kept, kept bringing up, which I really appreciated was this external pressure because you don't want other people to think you don't have control over, um, the situation, but in all reality, like I don't totally have control over it. I can still teach, but I don't have total control, you know? Exactly. And who cares what they think? But you're right. Um, let's see how their kids turn out in 20 years. So, yeah. you know, nobody's perfect. Who cares what anybody else? You're just doing your best and forget everybody else. All right. Well, I'll plan to give you some updates on my positive parenting techniques over the next year. <laughs> um, I'd say it pays off because there's so much less stress for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's just it. I want to eliminate, you know, I've got four little boys and it is chaotic in this house regardless of what happens. And I want to eliminate as much chaos as I possibly can. You know what? And, uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to be too much of an authority and all, but you know what? You're a good person. You're fine. And that's going to transmit. Like The hard work is already in your genes. So the hard work's done. Just make life happy for all you, you know, and it all sort itself out. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right. What is the best, most recent book you have read? Definitely The Great Pretender. Uh, my friend Cahalan's book, Susanna Cahalan. Uh, what she does with mental health is beyond what I can do. I, I feel like, yeah, that and The Wave. Uh, that and The Wave, the two most recent books, and both of them are the kind of books you're reading. You go, oh, crap. Uh, these people are out of my league. Okay. I know you're not like a celebrity, strict, like, you're not like into. I want to have coffee or cocktail with a celebrity type person. But if you could have coffee, cocktail, tea with someone fun, motivating, inspiring that you have not yet, who would it be? I got an easy one for that. This is also the third best book I've read lately. It is a crazy is my superpower by AJ Mendez. And she ended up blurbing running with Sherman uh, because a mutual friend gave her a copy of the books basically out of the blue I get a message from this professional wrestler, AJ Mendez, who said, Hey, I loved your book. Do you mind if I contribute a blurb? I'm like, yeah, you and your 10 million followers. Wow. And then, so I, I went and read her book. And I'm like, Holy Christmas. She's bipolar. Okay. Her mother's bipolar. She grew up in an extraordinarily challenging family dealing with mental illness. And she came out the other end. If you ever follow her online, man, she's so funny, so quick. Uh, so compassionate. So I've never met her, but she just strikes me as just an awesome person. So yeah, AJ Mendez. Likewise, if you're listening, hit, get that coffee. Hit him up, and and if you're listening, go ahead and share this with your 10 million followers. <laughs> yeah. All right, Chris. What is your what is your one message you'd like to send to the world? All right. See how this comes out, Lindsay, because it might sound ridiculous, but okay. I was on this run the other day, and. Um, I was feeling really stressed. I was actually running across a park in London to a speaking event on the other side of the park, and I was lost, and it was getting dark, and I was afraid they're going to start closing the gates of the park, and I had to climb like this 50-foot freaking iron fence. And then at one point, I was like, dude, you are running in a park in London at sunset. Why are you turning this into something bad? Like, why are you turning this into a negative? And I had this, I think— smart realization, which is that 
the run is always perfect when you start. That, that first step, the run is perfect. And from that point on, you can either keep it perfect or you can screw it up. You know, you can put expectations on yourself or, or whatever. And so that was my, my takeaway was like, the run is always perfect. If I can get people to understand that, like whatever you're doing is perfect if you allow it to be and don't put all kinds of expectations on it and turn it into something negative. That's good. And it's relatable to, you know, it's relatable to the parenting talk we were just talking about too, honestly. It's it's a relatable message. I, I really like it. Good work. <laughs> Thank you, Lindsay. I hope so. Um, all right. Well, this has been way more fun than I even realized it would be. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah. I feel like we should do this every week. This should be like a me and you talking weekly podcast. Well, you're, the problem you're going to run into, Chris, is that I'm just going to start asking you all kinds of parenting questions. You know, but anybody who's been through that tunnel, you want to talk about it because one of these things where you're learning stuff every day and you don't really have that many opportunities to actually use the stuff you learned. So yeah, it's uh, it's something that I'm, I think everyone's always happy to talk about. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been great. Um, I'll hold you to it. We'll do a follow up here in like six months and uh, you go, go get a run in with one of your donkeys. I'm heading out there right now, Lindsay. All right. Thanks, Love buddy. It. Really great talking to you. Thanks. You too. All right. All right, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Thank you. Chris, for coming on the show, for giving me all that great parenting advice. I appreciate you so very much. You can follow Chris on Twitter. He is Chris McDougal. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Lindsay Hine. I don't think Chris has Instagram. You can find me on Instagram, though. I'm Lindsay Hine 626 You can find me on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine where we have a group as well. And then the two sponsor codes I wanted to remind you of. Another.aftershocks.com. Use the code ANOTHER at checkout to get you $50 towards an endurance bundle. And if you're looking to run the Donna Marathon in February, you can use the code LINDSAY15 for 15% off your registration. All right. I appreciate you all so much. Thanks for being here. Have a great Friday. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And as always, I will see you next Friday.